Welcome to the Intentional Growth Podcast, the show that teaches you how to grow the value of a company with an end in mind. Host Ryan Tansom interviews top business leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and other professionals who share their experience and expertise about buying, growing, and selling companies. Welcome to the new year and happy 2021. I'm excited to kick off the new year with an awesome interview with a woman named Sarah Dusick. Sarah is the co-founder of a company called Under Canvas that she started with her husband, Jacob, and they're based out of Bozeman, Montana, and they are the pioneers of a industry called glamping, which is Glamorous camping. If you've not heard of it, I highly suggest you do some Googling, check out some of the pictures because it's some pretty crazy awesome stuff. Under Canvas started off by setting up right outside of national parks and they set up tents on wooden decks and they have furnished with mattresses, leather sofas, armchairs, cowhide rugs, and bathrooms, and running water and showers, you know, all the stuff that makes glamorous hospitality the reason that we all love to go get pampered, and combines it with camping outside in nature, looking at the stars. And to prove that this is something that everybody wanted to do is to look at the exponential growth of under canvas. Sarah's leadership landed her a spot on the EY Entrepreneurial Winning Women list from Ernst & Young. She and Under Canvas landed on the Inc. 5000. They bootstrapped and pioneered an industry until they raised $17 million for a minority stake in the business after saying no to a $7 million offer just a little bit before that. They then grew and sold the company to private equity in 2018 for a very large sum of money. Since selling the business to the private equity firm, Sarah has created a venture capital firm called Enigma Ventures, which is a private investment fund focused on investing in women-led businesses in Southern Africa. And the reason behind Enigma Ventures is because Sarah realized through the growth and then the desire to raise capital and fuel her growth that getting access to capital was unbelievably hard and completely asymmetrical with the information that the investors understood compared to what she understood as an owner-operator of a company. And after finding out that only 2% of women that desire capital obtain capital, her new goal at Enigma Ventures is to provide capital for women-led businesses and entrepreneurs that have an impact and a vision to change the world. A couple of the highlights that are going to be important to look out for for this interview is how Sarah was able to stay true to her original why and why they started under Canvas and how they were able to stay focused on what they were delivering to the market why capital became such an important topic. And we're going to dive into all the things that Sarah learned as it relates to private equity, valuations, deal structures, and how she took all the material that she was learning along the way and used it to stay true to her original true north for the business. And if you want to make sure that you are staying true to your vision and that you're clarifying the path to go make more money, have more fun, and make a bigger impact, and making sure that the capital and the event exit is tied to what you eventually want, check out the online intentional growth course. So without further ado, here's my interview with Sarah Dusick and the world of glamping. Sponsored by Arcona's intentional growth digital course. Ryan Tansom and Pat Hobby show you how to shift your mindset away from solving for annual income to focusing on strategies that create long-term value giving you the freedom and choices to take control of the future destiny of your business. 
Accelerate your knowledge with 36 videos and dozens of exercises that combine decades of experience buying, growing, and selling companies. Learn more by going to arcona.io or visiting the show notes. Good morning, Sarah. It's morning in Minnesota. I don't know where it is in South Africa, but uh, probably more towards the evening, I would assume. <laughs> that is correct. Yes, it's evening. Well, I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, you and I had met at uh, the EY Entrepreneur of the Year Award, and I was at EY had flown me out there for the winning women. And I don't know if I, uh, I think I mentioned it in the email, Sarah, but uh, Julia Beerwood had sent me an email that said, you've had a lot of middle-aged white men on your show. You should switch it up a little bit. And I was like, <laughs> I'm like, it's been a while since I had the whole streak of winning women on my show. And uh, since then, it's been a lot of fun getting everybody back on the show. And I, uh, you know, she had mentioned your name and then you and I were like, oh my God, we actually sat down. I don't know if it was at the uh, concert that night that we were chatting. Um, I can't remember exactly specifically on the event where we had met, but your story is really cool. And it's, even evolved since you and I met <laughs> and then you throw a pandemic in it. Yeah, it has. So for the listeners that uh, are not familiar with under canvas and understanding what glamping is and your story, you're doing some uh, angel investing and just a bunch of stuff that we can dive into Sarah, but maybe for the listeners, just give us a backdrop on the first business, the bit, you know, and what glamping is and how you got to where you are today. And then we can dive into different parts of the story. My pleasure. Yeah. Great to be here. Thank you very much for having me. I founded a company in 2009 with my husband called Under Canvas, which has become the U.S.'s largest uh, glamping company in the U.S. So we created or recreated, I should say, um, the African safari experience in the U.S. outside of national parks across the country. And that business has grown in extraordinarily ways. Um, even through a pandemic this year, we've had an extraordinary year under Canvas. And um, in 2018, we sold a large chunk of that business to private equity. And I am now on the board of Under Canvas, but off on our second adventure after selling a large chunk of our first company. So there's so which is super interesting to hear that you guys are growing like crazy because you were doing events and in there's a, a lot of challenges with events, but I think you were the intersection of the outdoors and events. So that's not a bad place to live. <laughs> yeah, it was a great place to live this year because with so much pent up demand with people wanting to travel, but not wanting to travel really far, wanting to be outside and experiencing the outdoors in the midst of a pandemic um, under canvas slotted right in into a very sort of great spot for folks this year in particular with those wanting to get outside and experience nature and uh, visit our national parks and travel but without going too far from home. So we got to before we go any further what the heck does glamping mean? <laughs> And how did you guys, you guys are pioneers in the industry too. So why don't you give us the lowdown before we dive into it? Yeah, glamping is a is a mishmash of a word, which kind of is between glamorous and camping. So it's the idea of glamorous camping, which really means luxurious camping. Camping that's uh, got real beds, hot water, showers, flushing toilets, nice fancy sheets furniture in your tent. So it's this idea of experiencing comfortable camping uh, that isn't any work. It's a bit like staying in a hotel room, but it's a beautiful tent instead. 
Oh, so uh, Sarah, I had uh, I had texted my wife um your guys's uh website and i said i'm interviewing sarah um in a little bit and she goes all she could think of because we, we, we've been campers most of our life i've been with her for 15 years and, and she just went she goes it reminds me of that jim gaffigan's uh scene where he talks about camping you ever seen that sarah where he's talking about who, what you ever heard of a happy camper there's no such thing <laughs> yeah, indeed well my campers are usually very happy because they're <laughs> They're living it up a little bit more than you normally are when you're camping. How did you guys come up? What you and your husband, where were you? How did you do like decide to become an entrepreneur? Was it an accident? Give us the kind of the origin story of the business. I think it was a divine accident, actually, because um, I spent my early 20s in Africa and I'm back in my 40s now, back in Africa. Um, but in my early 20s, I worked for an NGO fell in love with Africa. And after a few years of working for nonprofits, I met my husband, an American, and we traveled back to Montana. And Montana reminded me so much of the big, wide open spaces in the bush in Africa. And we had this crazy idea. We were already thinking about having worked for nonprofits. We were very passionate people with thinking about how do we change the world? How do we move the world forward? How do we make the world better? And so we'd spent five years of our lives working for aid organizations and really not making as much progress as we would have loved to have made and driving as much change and impacting lives as we would have loved to have liked. And it really sent us back to the drawing board. And so when I say it was a divine accident, I we stumbled on this idea that business could be a vehicle for good and that businesses could drive change in the world. I mean, the great thing about business is businesses are all about solving problems. They're, they're innovative vehicles for solving a problem and solving a problem in a sustainable way because you have to drive profits. And, and so we went back to the drawing board and thought about, okay, if this is a vehicle for changing the world and making the world better, we ought to learn something about going into business. And when I arrived back in Montana with Jake, I fell in love with Montana in many of the same ways I'd fell, fell in love with Africa. And we decided, why don't we try and bring a little bit of Africa to Montana? And so we started our business with a very small idea to see if we could recreate the African safari experience um, in Montana, which was where we started just over 12 years ago. So super cool. Cause I want to get into maybe a couple of different things here and we can, you know, go whatever direction you want and kind of loop it all back. I'll, um, it'll be a lot of fun is one is I want to get into the business model and how you guys grew so fast and how you guys continue to pivot and evolve just as the, as you guys were looking at the industry. But um, outside of that too, just as a theme, Sarah, what I think is so cool is I was looking at, um, and maybe you can give a little bit about some of the, you know, the startup stuff that you're helping with uh, Ignigma Ventures and what you're doing there. But Sarah, there's this thing that I've been really just passionate about over the last couple of years, conscious capitalism. And I don't, and back in 08, 09, when you guys were doing this, this was not really even a thing. Because when I read that book about business being a vehicle of good and everybody makes more money with all the stakeholders, it's like, oh my gosh, it's a thing. <laughs> and so you're, you know, this theme of conscious capitalism, whether you articulated it back then at that or not, what you with uh, under canvas, what you did, and then how you aligned those, um, the business and the good that you were doing. 
And honestly, like just to jump to kind of give you the whole theme, sir, why, why I'm so intrigued with this interview is that so many times when people start with a mission, like with what you're talking about, the end result, they end up having to sacrifice because they didn't know how to align their big why with the liquidation event of the business. So like, does that make sense? That bigger overall theme? Oh, yeah. It gives me loads to talk about. How, we got, how many hours have you got, Ryan? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tell, trust me. Like, if we need to make this a two-parter, I definitely will because it's such a passionate topic of mine, Sarah, that it's not just about the financial. Because of all the, the why that you started with, staying true to that, it's just so hard along the whole journey. Yeah. Well, I think the reality is, is nobody really ever goes into business to sell a business. You go into business to sell a uh, to solve a problem. And that's really, you know, the journey that we started to go on was how do we solve a problem? And the problem that we wanted to solve was um, how do we do development sustainably? How do we allow people and how do we create access to the great outdoors and allow people to experience incredible, beautiful, wild places and not destroy them at the same time? And so how do we think about being environmentalists and doing tourism or and being in the hospitality business? Um, and how do we marry the things that we love and are passionate about? And so that was the very beginning of a journey for us. And the great thing about being in business is it's a journey. Um, nobody quite has extreme clarity on where they end up. But I love the idea, and you expressed it so well, is that your why and your purpose and your the vision that you have defines or should define what you build. And if your if your vision is purely just to make money, it's not. It's, I mean, it may work, but I I don't know that it's really when there's no heart and soul in something, when there's no passion, when there's no mission, when there's no vision for moving this on changing up the world, solving a problem, making the world better for many, not just the few. I think the challenge of doing business like that is it's A, it's really short-sighted and, and makes your business very inauthentic, which these days is a big problem in doing business. Um, and two, it's not very satisfying at the end of the day. So when you can, when you can marry solving a problem that you care about and that um, it's meaningful for you, to solve it, and you can build a sustainable solution, i.e. build a profitable business. That's a very big marriage made in heaven. And it's the opportunity to do something great at the same time. Well, and this is where I, I totally agree. And I can't wait to hear more about how you did this. And I think the big trick part of this, Sarah, that I continuously hear in my show is you know, you can marry the problem that you're trying to solve with making a sustainable business, but how do you get out of it without sacrificing your your original vision? Yeah. Does that make sense? Because it's like that, like, then people get stuck in this cash flow operational machine and then they go, I love it. I want something different. Things aren't working or I want to change. And then how do I do that without sacrificing everything? So does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And it's super hard. And right. I, there's no quick, easy answer to making that happen. But I, I know all I can share really is our own journey in that regard. And we 
about eight, nine years into our business and we sold the majority of our business in 2018. So we were nine years in or 10 years in effectively from when we started in 2009. And for the last sort of few years towards the end of our business, we were starting to think about if we had some capital, what would we do with it? And we started to think it allowed us just to start to dream another dream, really, and solve another problem and think about what was next in our own journey. So the, the, the focus of our own journey was not really about the capital. It was about following our own sense of what's the next piece of our puzzle? What's the next, what's our next dream? What's our next big vision? And is doing more of what we're doing here? And are we best you utilize doing more of what we're doing right now? Is there another level to take this business to that it requires us? Or is there something more? And we, my, both my husband and I, who were in the business, felt like there was something more for us. And so we started to dream about that. And we started to dream about um, some of the problems that we're trying to solve now. And my own journey with Under Canvas very much informed what we're doing now. And my own journey as a female founder was, was a, a really crystallizing piece of our next piece of our journey because what I found the year we met actually Ryan in 2017 was the first year I started to think about putting outside capital into our business so that we could accelerate our growth and I had raised funding that year and and done a great great deal that year to put capital to the business to help it continue to grow and increase our vision and expand our footprint across the country was which was a, a fantastic enabler for growth in the business and my journey with raising capital had been an excruciatingly painful one and we all know the statistics that less than two percent of female founders receive uh, the venture capital funds that are distributed in the u.s every single year so my my journey is being becoming one of those two percent of women who was able to capitalize their business was a very, very painful, difficult, frustrating journey. And obviously had a lot of no's, a lot of negativity and a lot of people just not getting me or getting our business. And I realized I wasn't part of a big club. I wasn't part of a network. I wasn't part of a group of people who knew how to get this done who knew how to make this happen. And I was having to learn the hard way of what it was going to take to get people to take me seriously and to take my business seriously and, and put some capital to work. And I just realized at that moment in time, there's something wrong with the way this works. It's not equitable. It's not right. And it's not really based on the merit of great ideas and great businesses. It's really based, if I'm really honest, on who you know, maybe where you went to school and who you've got connections with or could your connections have connections with. I didn't have any of those things. And it was a real disadvantage. It took me 18 months longer than it should have done to have raised capital. And what I found when I encountered the industry was that it a was full of white men, B also full of 
folks, let's say, who I wouldn't necessarily choose to be my best friends. Yeah. And sure. so <laughs> yeah, Wall Street's totally a hard, harsh place. And I found it really brutal. And I, it just made me think, there's got to be a better way to do this. One, this isn't right. And they've also, there should be more women in this space, which started um, a cacophony of thoughts for me about what my next role in life might be. And thinking about if we were able to have a successful exit at some point, but I'd love to get in the ring and be a female investor and champion women getting funded and champion helping women get connected so they don't have to sit on the outside of the party, but get in the ring and play the game with the big boys because we're capable and we build great businesses and we, we, may, we may build businesses that look different than typical venture capitalists will fund, but that doesn't mean they can't be very valuable. They can't do amazing things to move our world forward and that they can be brilliant in their own right. So I don't, I don't know what question that really answers, but um, I think I'll keep, I'll keep tying it together. Cause Sarah, I think what you did is you laid the groundwork. I literally get the goosebumps because the problem that you just identified is it's, it is just a problem. And the, who holds the capital holds the power. And that is the problem. And you have, you know, there's, there's, there's a fantastic book that shows you how, you know, the, cause I've got one of my passions there is to file, follow that thread of the money. And that got me into the, like understanding private equity versus, you know, how is the money being used? And then you go and you realize that private equity raises it from pension funds and from all these endowments and these big pools of capital who are all just based, you know, in that, like you said, that club that's been formed over hundreds of years, there's a book called all the president's bankers that just talks about even how the presidents over the last 150 years have had very little power compared to the bankers. <laughs> and you're just like, oh, okay, so this is truly how it works. But what to loop it back, what I find so intriguing, Sarah, is that not only were you in, you're, you're trying to find the 2% or be part of the 2% to recapitalize, raise money and liquidate some of your holdings in your business while also staying true to your original why, right? So like, you're going after a small sliver while also not sacrificing your soul. And I think that the world is just ready for this. Hey, it's not just Milton Friedman who we're going to optimize for all shareholders. We're going to make good, right? There has to be some sort of purpose behind this. And how, you know, now that you've had both sides of the spectrum of like the owner operator, and now you're, now you're in the world of, you know, deploying capital, Maybe go back, you know, and because I think some context would be super helpful because I, I think the passion of what you're doing now, I want to end with that because of, it's a real thing. But I think if we tell part of the uh, first part of the journey, it'll lend some insights of why you're so passionate about the challenges that you went through. So when you said that you were, you know, when you and your husband had started the business and you were going through the operations and growing the business, what were some of the challenges that were, that were, you know, specific to the business and then also you as a female entrepreneur and then what led you to the winning women in EY? Mm. Yeah. The the challenges with growing any business are always unending. I mean, there's, there's, there's no business on the planet that doesn't have challenges for sure. And one of the challenges of being a female founder and a first time entrepreneur is, and this is true for everyone, I think male or female is nobody knows what they're doing the first time you do it. 
and you are you are making it up as you go, trying to figure out so many things to build a business. And I have not gone to business school, but I even think if you if you've gone to business school, when you when the rubber hits the road and you're you're building for the first time and you're trying to build a company from the ground up, it's really hard. But there are some fundamental building blocks, which I know exist today, but didn't know exist then, existed then. And so the challenges of building teams, the challenges of having enough capital in the business, the challenges of good governance, the challenges of knowing what to do when, what's the right moment for certain things to happen in the business Mm. and navigating the chaos through to professionalization of the business, managing your speed of growth um, and, and how you navigate driving your revenue and increasing your overhead and, and managing those two things in parallel. And obviously today with Silicon Valley has produced a model of business building that's, that's not brilliantly sustainable because we've been building that company. Burning, burning other the, people's money burn, without burn. me. Burn, burn, burn with no idea of how you're ever going to make any money. And that certainly was not the business I was building. It's it's not the business that most people are building. It's a very niche subset of businesses that really can get away with that. Um, because maybe they become a you know a tech unicorn maybe one day. But but a lot of businesses fail um that way when you burn a lot of money, burn, burn really hard and burn really fast. So it's this idea of, you know, consistently trying to grow your revenue and understanding the building blocks that help you grow your business. And when you do that for the first time, when you've not done it before, those of us who have to learn the hard way have to make mistakes <laughs> and you have to learn, learn what doesn't work before what does work. But obviously, you know, you, you've got to learn fast because it's going to be expensive to fail. And expensive to make mistakes. Oh, and I was specifically, I was reading one of your articles of you guys bringing in, uh, like it was a 400 different pieces via helicopter into a remote location. (laughs) So I I can't imagine that's cheap. So curious as, as you're delivering glamping experiences in all different areas, and I believe even Game of Thrones, like how did you make money while also delivering the why and like sustainable development how did you start you know and what were some of the trials and tribulations about kind of trying to marry the experience in your why with making money yeah money making money always came secondary the staying true to what we were trying to do was our really big driver and then thinking about um delivering and once you've got clarity on what you're delivering um and creating a value proposition helps you think about driving profitability. So we were really clear on who we were, what we did, and what we were great at. And we weren't we weren't trying to be great at a million things. We're trying to be great at one thing. And I think that really helps. Focus and clarity is a really big piece of the puzzle. And I know I talk to so many entrepreneurs now when they're talking about, well, we've got this revenue line, we've got this revenue line, and this revenue line it's really hard to grow like a million revenue lines. (laughs) So focus for us was key and being really clear what our niche was and what it wasn't. So that when we got a call and said, can you do X? We knew, yes, we can, or no, we can't. That's not our game. That this is our game. We're really good at this. And we're getting better at this. 
was there was there an experience that you know some sometimes clarity comes from mistakes was there a some, some event or two along the way that where you said this is not what we're doing and it became more clear what you were trying to focus on well one of the one of the challenges we faced early on in our business and of course if you remember that we pioneered the glamping industry in the US so we were really the first pioneers of doing what we did and as i said earlier we created large scale resorts outside of national parks and one of and we designed our own tents we had very unique product and one of the challenges that happened early on in our business don't think i've really shared much before was that we had this opportunity because we were designing our own tents and manufacturing our own product we had an opportunity to sell tents oh interesting and people would ask us all the time uh, for other people who are wanting to set themselves up in business, where did you get your tents? Can we buy your tents? And it was really tempting to create another revenue stream for our own business, which was selling our own product. But we realized really early on in our game that, and we sold a handful of tents in, in the early, very early days of our business, but we realized really early that if we sold tents, if we allowed selling tents, and making and selling tents for other people to become glamping operators, we would use the very lose the very unique thing that made under canvas different, in that our tents are iconic, in that nobody has tents that look like our tents. So if you stayed in under canvas camp, you will have the same tents, the same experience, whether you stay in our new main location that's opening up in on Arcadia in July 2021. Or if you stay in one of our first camps uh, that opened in 2012 in Yellowstone, for example. And so we face this choice. Do you drive, do you just try and create cash because you need cash? Or do you think about the brand that you're building and what you want to be known for? And we decided we didn't want to be known for being a tent manufacturer. We wanted to be known for our iconic resorts that enabled families, individuals, friends to come and experience and be outside in the great outdoors in comfort and style. And we wanted to create access to the outdoors more than we wanted to sell tents. Mm -hmm. And so our, our mission drove what we allowed, the business that we allowed ourselves to get into. And we knew that we'd create a more valuable company if we built a great brand and we built a great product and if we sold that particular product to anyone who wanted to buy it. So it was a very unique um, decision for us, but it certainly meant it was a very defining um, decision for us in terms of building value in our own business. And that we understood that the value of our business, yes, is driven by our EBITDA number at the end of the day, but it's also driven by the power of our brand and what we were building and therefore what we were selling. And that was a very key decision for us. So a um, couple, couple questions. So building value, there, you know, I'm trying to figure out which way to go here. <laughs> um, building value is a, a, a topic that we talk a, a lot about. And I just want other entrepreneurs to get a better understanding of value in their business so they can focus on making sure whatever they're doing is truly doing that. So the kind of two two parts of this question and for whatever way you want to answer it is when and how did you start to understand valuations and what builds value 
Because like you had said, a lot of us don't start a business to be in business. We started to solve a problem. So this is kind of like a minor effect, like thing that we all, not minor, but it's a thing that we're like, oh yeah, we should probably understand what this is worth. So that's one question. The second part, Sarah, is, you know, you talked about your mission and the, the, the temptation to sell tents and what you decided to be, you know, true to your mission. How did you align that with the eventual buyer? Because what ends up happening, I've interviewed hundreds of people, sir, that they're like, they had that original vision and mission, mission like you talked about, but when they sold, they didn't realize that the buyer all of a sudden was going to sell tents on Amazon. You know what I mean? Like there was just this aha or gotcha after the fact. So maybe again, two parts of like understanding value. And then how did you align your why with the uh, journey of raising capital? Yeah, let me start with the first part of the question because A, it's easier to answer. Um, <laughs> I guess the quick answer is to, and there was a really good example that happened this year. There was an article that was out in the midst of sort of the height of the pandemic and all the airlines were grounded. And there was an article, it was either about United or Delta, I can't remember. I think it was United, but it was talking about, they were recapitalizing the business and they had recapitalized the business on the back of their loyalty program. Oh, yeah. And they defined, you probably saw it, but they had defined the value of the business was really not about flying people from A to B every single day. It was really about the loyalty that they had driven through their loyalty program. And they had just raised a whole bunch more capital on the back of they have X number of people in loyalty program and had valued it that way, which was mind blowing for me, even again, having understood how businesses are valued. But it, what it said to me was really know the business that you're in mm-hmm. and really because value can be defined in a million different ways. And it's up to you, the entrepreneur, to sell to whoever you want to sell, sell to, to define your own sense of value and understand what really is valuable to someone else. Cause that's all evaluation really is. Yeah. It's understanding what is valuable to someone else and how, how they could define it. And ideally you define it in a, in maybe two or three different ways. So for me, the, the first part of the question is really understand the business that you are in and United very cleverly forgive me if it was Delta, I can't remember, but they really cleverly understood the business that we are in is creating loyalty and points around traveling. And it's not just about getting people from A to B. And so when you build a company, you have to start thinking about what could be valuable to someone else one day. Is it my customer basis? Is it an experience that I sell? Is it a product that I sell? Is it names and numbers? Is it what, what is the heart of what makes us valuable to someone else? You know, and the tech companies understood this a long time ago, which is why they can get away with not being profitable so much of the time, because they understood, you know, you know, Facebook's the classic example. We understood what makes us valuable is our ability to market to millions of people around the world by putting ads in front of them every single day and our capacity to do that. And so there's so much in there about understanding the power of your own 
brand or your own company and who it might be worth something to. And when I thought about my own brand, we thought about there's power in, for us, there was power and value in being the leading dominant player in a brand new market. So there was value connected with we are the pioneers in this space. We have created this market and have demonstrated that people would like to go and sleep out under the stars in amazing tents um, and have great experiences. So, so we started to think of ourselves as an experience company, outdoor hospitality company, not just um, a hotel, which is very different than thinking we're just a hotel and we have room nights to sell. That's my product, effectively. Or we started tent, to think, right? or tents, yeah, exactly. Or sell tents for other people to put room nights up. We started to think about, we're, ex- we're an outdoor experiential travel company and we create incredible experiences for people in the outdoors. And that's what we do. And that's the power of my brand, which creates enormous value and enormous opportunities to think you know that other strategics other companies might want our ability to do that for them you know as you're going along this journey and you're things are working and you're starting to like re-envision what the business could be like where did that process start what was the kind of the new uh, actually there's like a new thought in your mind, a seed that got planted that you can't start stop thinking about that led towards that next uh, phase. Well, an amazing thing happened for me, which really was an incredible gift. And a friend of a friend who I didn't know reached out to us and she had stayed at one of our camps and she was a venture capitalist out of, out of New York. And she had let me know uh, that we had a potential competitor up and coming, nipping at our heels, uh, and that he was out raising capital in New York um, and had heard his pitch, but she had stayed with us and had an incredible experience. And A, wanted to let me know that someone else was trying to raise money in the space and that B, she thought we should raise money in this space because we were doing an amazing job and we could potentially accelerate our business. And I remember, I mean, when she reached out to me, I had no clue whatsoever what venture capitalists were looking for when they wanted to um, think about what might be an investable business. And she explained EBITDA to me for the first time ever. (laughs) I'm glad you brought that up. Suddenly understood that there was a metric, a financial metric that was interesting to venture capitalists. And she explained how you arrived at that, you know, that number and that it wasn't just your net profit number. There were things that could be removed out of your. your Normalized. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So, so that was a whole revelation to me. And, you know, it was like, gosh, that this is, it was like being given the keys to the kingdom almost, you know, like suddenly you understand the rules of the game and, and how you need to present information to make other people interested and what kind of metrics might be important. So that was revolutionary. And then she told me something even more revolutionary, which was like, French capitalists are looking for 10x on their capital. And I was like, what? What do you mean? What, how does that work? She said, well, if I invest a dollar today, I want to see that it's going to be worth $10 in you know, five years time or whatever. And I was like, wow, 
Okay. So that began to really help us think about our own economics of our own business. And we had great economics, as it turned out, in our own business. We just didn't understand that we had great economics in our own business. But we started to think about return on capital, you know, the ROI on capital, and thinking about, all right, if we're going to grow and scale this business, how how much money could you put in with understanding what the metrics might be for thinking about a return? And could I show clearly through my forward-going projections that a return might be possible? And so that was a hugely pivotal moment for our own business because we started to think about growth in a new way because we were organically growing, which meant we were replowing our profits back into the business to grow organically and do what we could with the money that we had. And obviously that's what a lot of people do with their own businesses when they're trying to grow them. And sometimes that's just not enough. And you could go faster if you had capital in the pot to help you grow more. So we started to understand what it meant to think about ROI, what it meant to try and think about showing investors they're going to get a return if they invest in me and what that process, you know, how I might project out the business and how fast could we grow if we had capital and what would we need to spend money on and where would it go and what would the end result be and what would that look like? But that was a hugely defining moment for me because it just revolutionized how I started to think about what could become possible. It changed the whole trajectory of our business, really, because we now could think about accelerating and we could think about how we might lever the business to grow the business and think about um, what the value of the business might be. Um, and how it might be calculated. And so it was it was totally game changing for us. So I like just love everything you said. <laughs> and the reason is, Sarah, is like, you know, like I, I, I call it the shift, the mindset shift. My my business partner I actually just did in our podcast about this, where like you go from solving for annual income and organic mm-hmm. growth to what is EBITDA multiples? And it's just, it, it's like someone also said, it's like seeing the zeros and ones in the matrix. <laughs> yeah, totally. Because you start to suddenly think not what is my day-to-day reality, but what could suddenly be possible that I couldn't have imagined could be possible before and starting to undersee, to see how the game works so that you actually might then get to play it and get on, move forward in in new ways that could be revolutionary for your business and, and personally, quite frankly. Well, and so now this is, this is super fun because now as we're kind of shifting to the second phase, now, then you realize once you're the game, you mentioned the game, and then you realize that there's a lot of bankers and people in yeah. suits and who have, who might not have the people, you know, you're in the trenches, you're glamping, you're setting up tents, you're deploying, you know, you're delivering stuff on helicopters. And then you, you start to get into this world of rows and columns and spreadsheets and IRRs. <laughs> and it's like a completely different world. And the, this whole movement of conscious capitalism and what you're all about too, Sarah, is how do you align and stay true to what you're doing and then get into this world? Right. And how did, so like, what, what was the timeline from that mindset and that conversation with your friend as you're learning this and just the challenge, like it's kind of going back to your original point of the challenges and how did you find out of that 2% of women that raised capital successfully, someone that aligned with your vision? Well, another revolutionary piece of learning for me 
which was when you're not in the club and you don't know anyone who's got capital to potentially give to other businesses, you need someone to make interjections for you. And so in 2017, I discovered, which was also as revolutionary for me as understanding what EBITDA was for the first time, was that there are brokers for everything in the US and that somebody could maybe help me raise capital because I was getting nowhere. And so I was introduced to an amazing broker who who introduced us to the, the first lot of capital that we ended up taking on board in 2017, who helped us think about what the right kind of capital might be for our business. And in 2017, we had a great deal that was was a mixture of debt and equity. And I had a great cash flowing business that had some collateral that had um, was able to service debt. And so debt was a great way for us to grow the business without obviously um, sacrificing our own ownership portion of the business, which meant we could grow more before we gave away equity um, to a third party. And that that in itself was hugely helpful because it meant there's not one way to put capital into a business. Putting capital into a business is usually and should be, you know, really um, exponential for the business's growth because it can unlock things that you can't do organically with slow capital. But there's not one type of capital that's right. And certainly in our process in that journey, we were offered a a deal that was pure equity for a certain amount of, of dollars. And it was the first term sheet that I'd ever seen when we got this first offer. And it was very scary because there was three pages of literally words on that page that I had no clue what they meant whatsoever. From oh my gosh. References to liquidation rights, to drag-alongs, tag-alongs, I mean, you, you name it. There was, there was every terminology you can possibly imagine that happens in the space was on that term sheet. And I had no understanding what any of it meant. And all I was being told was, it's just market. This is just market. This is normal. And if you don't accept these terms, yeah, if you don't accept these terms, you're not going to get better terms from anyone else because these are just the terms that we all use. This is the way business is done. And if we, you don't do a deal, you won't get a deal from anyone. If you don't deal this with us, you won't get a deal from anyone. And I was like, and you can't, you can't even be patient enough with me to understand, help me understand what I am doing with signing away my business. I mean, it was, it was ugly. It was really ugly. And it made me angry. It made me, re- it made me angry enough to become venture capitalist myself. It was that bad. And it was, it was so frustrating because there are very complex terms involved with uh, doing venture capital deals. It's like, a, you know, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a legal transaction and there are a variety of legal terms that, that make sense in that space. It's just when you are new to the space, it's it's like another a whole other language that other people are speaking that you don't necessarily understand, which is disempowering, of course. And when we talk about people of color, minorities, women getting you know getting more venture capital to more a my more diverse subset of the population, what we've got to understand is um, a many of us don't have networks that we are automatically connected with this world, which I've already talked about. B, the language that we're talking is also a completely foreign language. And so we don't have to dumb anything down. We just have to take the time 
to help people understand the context of what these things mean and that there's choice in this, <laughs> that not all term sheets are the same. There is no such thing as market. Yes, there's norms for sure, but often the norms are quite egregious. They're quite ugly. And it doesn't mean you have to accept terms that you're uncomfortable with to do a good deal. And ultimately, I remember we were, we, I ran under canvas, you know, on a tightrope with cash. It was always very, very tight and always very, very scary. I probably lost 10 years of my life because of the stress of living like that. But we turned that term sheet down after trying to negotiate for, for months, really, and trying to understand what a 3x preference was. And, you know, <laughs> eventually we just got to the point where we just felt like, I just don't feel comfortable. I just don't. I feel like, A, I'm getting bullied in this partnership already and we haven't even done this deal. And B, I just don't feel comfortable with these terms. I think this, this should be better than it is. And I feel like I'm, I'm feel like I'm getting sold. That's what I felt like. I, I felt like I'm getting sold down the river here by people trying to make money off me and not trying to make money with me. And that was a very big flag for me. And it should be a very big flag for anyone, quite frankly. If, if, if you're being offered terms that feel inequitable and feel like you're not going to be great partners with the person at the other side of the table and you feel like somehow you're getting screwed, don't do it. Is our <laughs> right? Do it. <laughs> Yeah, because it's like getting married, unfortunately. I mean, it's that intense a relationship and you really don't want to be married with somebody who doesn't see you as an equal, one. And two, who you feel like is just trying to get one over on you or or do what they think is right for them to win. And that's very common, unfortunately, in venture capital is, is you know, venture capitalists expect to, to win. And of course, because you're trying to make money. I mean, that's the win by what of, and who and what is win at what expense? That, yeah. and that's a very big challenge with with the really your question, Ryan, which is about how did you not lose sight of your values or your vision or what you're trying to do at the expense of trying to get money? And to be honest, if enough of us hold true to our own values and our own uh, vision of what we're trying to achieve, these guys won't have deals to do. Right. So we can't keep handing them deals on a platter that say, you know, this is fine. It's fine to walk all over me. It's fine for, for 500 pages of terminology that I don't understand for you to get what you want that have you know, really screw me over in so many different ways. Well, it's so um, crazy, Sarah, like, you know, like just to make sure that everybody just hits home, you there's only 2% of women that successfully raise capital. Then you got to go in there and you're trying to find a partner that makes money with you, not on you. Yeah. And you're learning a new whole set of skills and words and all these things. It just, and the reality is all you want to do is grow your business. Like grow your it, business. Not, that's, that's it. Not, right? I don't know. All you want to do is stay true to the vision you've got and grow your business. And yet there's a whole pile of poop that comes with this, <laughs> with this, with this area. And it's so stressful and it's so hard. And nobody tells you, Nobody tells you how this goes down and it's super, it's super tough and super, you know, it's eye-opening having gone through it. And, you know, our own decision at that moment in time in 2017, it was like, we might go out of business if I don't put money in the pot. It was that serious for us. You know, we were at the end of our, our cash. And in that moment, you're really torn because it's like, do what, you know, 
what happens to all the people that we've employed? What happens to all the, the, the things that we've done and the vision that we've created and the great things that we're doing? And what happens if I can't capitalize this business? It's disastrous. But yet here I'm, you're facing terms you don't like, people that you don't necessarily like, and feeling like I got to somehow I got to put money in this business. And then you're, you're faced with big, hard, nasty choices, which neither of which seems good. And we chose at that moment in time, like, this is not, we just don't feel good about this deal. This is not a deal we can do. And we pulled the plug and that was ugly. <laughs> yeah. I was just going to say, so what, what was ugly about it? I was told at that moment in time, if I didn't do that deal, I would get blacklisted and I would never raise money from anyone because they would put the word out that I was not, you know, I was not playing by the rules. And yeah, exactly. Um, But it was that, it was just, it was just bullying basically. Um, Because he wanted to get his deal done. He wanted wanted to do a deal and he didn't want to, he didn't want to lose face because we'd gone down the road. They had expenses and I was, you know, I was pulling out. So it it was tough for them, but, you know, I, if I was clear about not doing the deal before that moment in time, I was certainly really clear after that moment in time. Cause I was like, there is no way I'm now doing a deal with you if you're going to behave like this towards me. So it was like, if this is the end of my business, so be it. I am not doing business like this and I am not going to live like this. And that was, <laughs> that was, I, I went back to my people and I, I told, I told everyone what I had done and I stood up at our town hall and we were probably about 20 people at the time. So we were still really small, you know, my full-time staff, not my operational team, but my full-time sort of corporate overhead staff. And I told them and I said, we're really close to being out of money, but I've just turned this deal down for $7 million, which would have put a cash in our, you know, bank account. But here's why. And what it did was it, it completely galvanized for me the values that we have in our business. And it was, it was a really catalyzing moment because we realized things about who we were, how we were trying to do business, what we cared about, and what was the soul and heart of our business. And that's a really powerful thing because if you can find the right partner who allows you to be who you are and the soul of your business to stay intact, that's gold dust right there. I mean, that's that's a magic formula if ever there was one. And it it really, it just helped me understand this business has soul. I have soul. I care. And I care about the kind of deal that we do. And I care about how I'm treated. And I am respecting myself enough to not have to um, bow down to that kind of craziness. Because really, that's what, what did I do? <laughs> <laughs> I cried. I cried for a while, actually, Ryan, if I'm really honest, because I was distraught. I was really distraught by it. And I cried in front of my team. And I'd never done that before. And, you know, that's another reason, you know, men will say women should not be greatly just to just cry babies. So I was like, it was so emotional. It was, it was such a terrible time. But you know what? We went back to the drawing board. We found someone to help us. As I said, I found a great broker at that moment in time to help us find the right partner. And then we talked to to them about what our goals really were, what kind of capital might be good for the business, 
how much equity we wanted to give up or not give up and what we were trying to achieve, you know, long-term, where we were trying to take the business. And he went out then and shopped his own network and thought thoughtfully about who might the right partners be, what kind of capital might be the right kind of capital. I shared my experience so he knew he couldn't go to the, you know, hard and fast Wall Street guys. Um, and he had to be more creative with, with how we put money in the business. But that process took us another six months. Um, amazingly, I, I, friends and families, and, and I begged, plead, pleaded, borrowed from the bank and you know anyone else who would listen to help tide us over while we went through this process to keep us alive, um, which we did, which was scary and hard, but we did it. Um, and he then brought to, to the table an amazing firm out of California who did a great debt and equity deal with us who cared about our business, who cared about family businesses. That was, that was great for me because they understood that we were a family run business. You know, my husband and I were in this business together. We built it from scratch. Um, and they had a long track record of doing business with family owned businesses and family run companies and buying them out either entirely or in, you know, small pieces of or capitalizing them in some way. Um, and they were a really great fit for us and they really helped go the distance. And I would, I'm going to name them because they, they deserve recognition as Spanos, uh, Jesse and Barbara were an incredible, Spanos, Barbara and Jesse, SBJ, um, were an incredible, incredible partner for us and really helped us be thoughtful about what was appropriate cash-wise to put into the business. And I ended up uh, putting about, I think how much did I raise then? Um, 17 million into the business when I had turned down seven. Ooh, uh, straight. Good for you. Yeah. And with the, with the right vision and um, partner. <laughs> yeah, totally. So it was a huge, it was a huge ordeal. Yeah. It was amazing. When, so this was a, when the people that you mentioned, was that your investment banker or the private equity firm? So they were, they were our first capital in 2017. And then in 2018, <laughs> I had doubled down. I, I successfully deployed $17 million in a year. We'd grown exponentially from that year. Um, and a year later, we were ready to put more capital into the business. So we went out again um, with an investment banker team to help us position the business to put more capital in. I was looking to raise, you know, another 50 million or whatever and to grow the business. And at that moment in time, um, we ended up taking some money off the table and selling a majority share of our business at that point. And our first investors were wildly rewarded because our valuation <laughs> I love those stories. eventually <laughs> increased from, from 2017 to 2018. And they had, I mean, they were, yeah, it was amazing. So was that, was that first investment from those partners you mentioned, were they debt or equity or a combination of, the, of both? Well, a combination. Yeah. Okay. So they did a tiny piece of equity and a lot of debt, which was okay. great for us. Got it. Well, it's interesting because I, I, I actually did this podcast here called uh, Bridging the Capital Gap, Growth Capital. Because there's a lot of the private, you know, where you have to sell too much equity because of private equity or there's you're too small or whatever it is where, you know, if you can align the capital and, and debt specifically to value creating activities in the business, like you, you proved that you can do it. <laughs> so how did you, in that through the short 12 plus months, how did you then, you know, again, staying true to your why and what you guys wanted for the business? I mean, you're, you're 
with that kind of growth is expensive. So obviously you, you gobbled all that up. Did you plan and intend to sell it again that fast? And again, how no. did you get through? No, not at all. I didn't plan to, didn't plan to sell at all. What happened was we, with the in first injection we put into the business, we really understood, okay, we now understand if we put more capital to work in the business, I could see the pathway to, to, we had seven camps at that, well, less than that, actually four camps um, when I first went out to raise capital. But I could see the pathway to 30 camps, you know, being across all of the major national parks across the country. And I could see us being a unicorn. And so at that moment in time, we built the model that said, all right, we've we've started our journey of scaling. We're exponentially scaling. We've dialed in our systems and our processes We've put capital to work and shown that we can effectively use it. And now we're ready to put more capital in and roll out the rest of our, our business model and our, and our plan of action to, to do more of what we love and what our customers are loving and, and replicate what we're already doing. And so that we went out to do that. And in that moment, we, we attracted the attention of some really big players in the hospitality space. Um, because of what we'd already achieved and and done over the last seven years and with the vision that we had to grow the business exponentially and and that's you know the power of our brand was very real at that moment in time it's even more real today obviously as the business keeps growing but it was it was hugely hugely galvanizing and I uh, one of the key things that happened that year is we were starting to think about what was next because great entrepreneurs don't love doing the same thing over and over and over and over. Um, both Jake <laughs> and I are, are pioneers and, you know, we all love shiny new things. But um, we started, you know, we, we started to think about, we started to ask ourselves, what do we really want? You know, we've proved to ourselves we can raise capital. We've proved we can scale a business. We've proved we can take it from zero to hero. Um, what do we want? What's, what's really important to us? Um, and as we started to have conversations with big hospitality players, we started to think, well, actually it is important for us now, having sweated so much over the last decade and had so much stress, um, we'd like to take some money off the table. Um, mm -hmm. And we'd like to think about our next endeavors while still seeing this business uh, do what we believe it can do. Um, and so that really then galvanized the thought process behind giving up control, which was a huge ordeal. I don't know. Uh, the giving up control piece is really, is a, is a big, tough one, to be honest. And What's having done it, well, it is tough having someone else run your own business. It's tough stepping away. It's tough transitioning out from being in the weeds and, you know, knowing everything there is to know and making every decision. I stepped down. I, I remained CEO. We we closed our transaction in the end of 2018 and I remained CEO till the end of 2019. And um, it was very tough stepping away from that, um, that role in the business. And there were days when I, even now where I still wish I was CEO of the company because um, it's hard, it's hard when you're passionate about something so intensely 
to to not be in the thick of it all. But we, I purposefully at the end, well, very beginning of this year, 2020, had had set our North Star, if you like, uh, for the company, which is, you know, which will hopefully keep the company on track and remind people what it is we care about, what it is we're doing, why we're doing what we're doing, that will hopefully keep the soul of the company intact. But invariably the company is a different company today than it than it was even 18 months ago um there's there's a couple parts of that sir that i'd love to hear how you get how you approached it is so like you know you've got this soul you've mentioned the soul and the mission and it's like this you know you talked about entrepreneurs being visionaries and i'm assuming you know you're talking about going from four camps to 30 and you've got it's hard to not think about what could be with your business, but you're yeah. also trying to keep that intact, bottle that up, take some money off the table. You know, you're selling to private equity. How do you, you know, cause you got the dollar amount. I don't know if it was 50 or whatever you said that, you know, you got these dollar amounts that are being thrown out there and it's easy to sacrifice or short change staying true to that. Why with the business, when you're looking at those new term sheets and what I'm trying to get at is key. How do you, what did you go through to see if that new PE firm is going to stay true to your vision of what you wanted for the business, not sell tents, not become the next Marriott where all of a sudden you're destroying the land that you want. You know what I mean? Like there's so many things that could happen the moment that someone becomes the owner of your business. And also, I don't know with this private equity firm, the fact that they have a date in time that they're going to have to sell this business, unless they did something unique, there's in offline, you and I can talk more, there's uh, some uh, people in the conscious capitalist world that are raising private equity funds that have no date to sell. Mm -hmm. So I'm just curious on how these, you know, these tactical financial things of date to sell, ownership, dollar amounts, those things staying true to with you, what you wanted with the business? Well, I'm not going to lie. I don't know that I played this round of cards as well as I might have done. What I didn't know about private equity that I do know today is that it's very common, especially when they take control for founders who are in the CEO seat to be removed. And because they want their own, they have, they have a playbook. <laughs> I, I wish I had known they had a playbook. They have a very clear playbook. They like to make small tweak private equity. If I'm, if I generalize, I'm going to generalize. They like to make small tweaks to a business, run their play, increase margin by, you know, 20% or whatever, increase the bottom line and flip it again. Mm-hmm. And the idea with private equity, which I didn't know, know before, but now I know, is for all intensive purposes, they're like property developers, if you like. You know, you you up, you redo the house, you you put some makeup on the house, and you flip it. And in it white, that, get a granite countertop in the center island. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's make it look a little prettier, a little more updated, and flip the thing. And I don't know that I, I, I'm, I'm sure private equity guys would like to say that is not what we do. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I think that's what they do. You know, yes, profitability of 
my business hugely improved from from me running the company to um, private equity company running the, the show for sure, one hundred percent. Is it a slightly different business today than it than it was before? Yeah, for sure. Um, and so, I none of that is is terrible. None of that is bad. I just wish I'd known. And that's the hard part of doing something you've not done. And this is the beauty of this podcast. For example, you get to learn all sorts of things by other people's mistakes and all the things they didn't know and their experiences. But yeah, I mean, private equity has a very clear plan. You sell in, you know, five to seven years, maybe less. You pretty the thing up. You increase the bottom line. You increase the EBITDA number as much as you possibly can and you try and make 20% annualized return. And there's a really low bar. For me, that's that's a low bar in terms of annualized return. It's a great return, obviously. Um, it's It wasn't what I was hoping the business would do over the next five years. So we've got slow and steady growth, which is probably very smart. <laughs> but it wasn't, it wasn't the the play or the the way I was going to run the company um, and going to allow it to continue to grow. It's hard. It's, it's very hard. Well, there's, like I said, there's this world of of the matrix of the zeros and ones, you know, you, even though you can start understanding value, like, I mean, truly, this is what my partner and I teach because it's just like, it's not like, and it's, it's difficult to, to say to others, like, it's not that it's wrong what they did in like the buyer that bought us. It was a strategic buyer. They bought our customers and they, and we had to fire 50 plus percent of the people. Like that was the nature of the deal. It was yeah. the lack of my knowledge. Yes. That's that was the frustrating part, right? It's not no one's fault. Like private equity, that's the nature of the beast. But if you, after the fact, realize that there was different options, different ways to structure the puzzle, then you're yeah. like, bummer. <laughs> Like wish it wouldn't, you know, no. it's, it's, does that make sense? Yeah, totally. And it's the not knowing it's the, that's the problem. And it's, unfortunately it's to no one's advantage that you do know, for example. And that's the most frustrating thing for me, I think about the whole, this whole space, this whole private market space with, with mm-hmm. bank and capital coming to company. It's not to your advantage for you to understand the way the system works. It's not, it wasn't to, to their advantage that I understood what would happen post-closeout transaction because I might not have done the transaction. Um, and so that's that's a problem in my world. And that's that's a problem that I want to solve today. I want everyone that I make an investment in today to understand how I'm viewing their business, how I might think about what our outcomes might be, what we might do with it, what would be important to me, what's an issue for me, how I'm thinking, you know, there should be 110% transparency because I want to be a partner in creating growth rather than someone who just makes money off the back of someone else else's hard work. And, you know, the entrepreneurs are value creators, are huge value creators. There is no industry, there is no private markets industry without entrepreneurship. Because we are the visionaries, we are the brains of, we are the problem solvers. And our job as investors really should just be to unleash all the potential that there is in entrepreneurs for the greater good, which should, as a byproduct, make money. 
Um, but when the money is the driver, what we end up with is a skewed um, set of values that creates weird rules. And I mean, it's weird, weird ways of things get, get done. Exactly. And that's what then screws the whole thing up. And then you get companies that don't make any money being worth, you know, billions of dollars. And then you get sexual harassment and, you know. It's just toxic. And, and it's toxic. You just get yeah. this weird, toxic environment. And that is where we're at today, unfortunately. We've got, you know, we've got this huge disparity, you know, inequality disparity, one. And then we've got this huge, toxic environment that's just breeding more toxicity. And we've got to change it. We've got to do something about it. And... Uh, that that is why I'm doing what I'm doing today, and I am focused on investing in female entrepreneurs, only female entrepreneurs in Southern Africa. And for me, as I said at the start of this interview, uh, you know, Africa has always been a huge passion for me. Entrepreneurship is a huge passion piece for me. Female entrepreneurs knowing how to play this game is a big big piece of the puzzle. But we've got so much inequality around gender, race, and geography. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as you so eloquently put it, where the money is going is where the power is flowing. And it's affecting the world that we're building and that we're creating. And if we want a different world, if we want a world that is more equal, if we want a world that is creating a better place for many people to live, not just a few people to live, if we, if we want a world that exists in another generation's time, because we haven't destroyed it because we've, we've, we've massacred, you know, our climate, we've got to invest differently. Those who've got money and the power today have to invest it differently. And we have to think about the, the constructs within which we're playing and, and what we're doing with how we're building. Because if we don't change, if we just keep propping up the system as it is today, the pandemic and crisis, uh, you know, and Trumpism of, you know, the last four years and polarization that we've got in our world today is just the tip of the iceberg. It's not the end of it. It's just the beginning. And that is pretty doomsday. But I, I'm actually very hopeful because there's conversation happening now in the world like there's never been happening before but we've got to do something different you know the, the definition of insanity is you keep doing the same thing and you expect to get a different result and it will be insane to expect we're going to end up in a different place than we're projected to end up in 20 years if we don't do something different and that's what we've got to do today and what's interesting is the the things that i'm reading sarah that you know, there's a Ray Dalio. I follow him a lot. And uh, he's got a new book called The Changing World Order that talks about the long-term debt cycle and where we're at with our country and the globe. And there's this world uh, with the nature of the long-term debt cycle is you, you almost are in this wealth extraction. And if you have, I mean, private equity is double the size of public markets at this point. And there, you know, you talked about entrepreneurs create value. And then you're, it can't just be value extraction afterwards. It has, in and the motives and investment theses of these people deploying capital are going to drive what happens to it. And you and I were chatting on LinkedIn and you, one of your articles you posted about what you're doing is 
this, I think it was called the prosperity paradox, where they talk about the pull, where like by capitalism, conscious capitalism, going and investing in different areas, you create an ecosystem that creates cash flow and value and infrastructure. And it's not like, it's so crazy where like, if you're truly the greediest human being on the planet, this is something that should spark your interest. So hopefully we're at that tipping point where people are starting to realize that because I think that's where you start to really get the momentum going. Yeah, that's what, and that's what I'm hopeful about. That's why I'm hopeful that 2020 is a, a, a catalytic year that creates change on so many levels. And I'm hopeful that it's a turning point. I am hopeful that it is a great reset as the World Economic Forum have tried to, um, to coin it. But that's what I want to be a part of. And I want to be a part of creating wealth for many and building a better world for all of us. Because if we do that, that's what we'll get. If that's what we build for, that's what we'll, that's what we'll end up with. So how are people supposed to get in touch with you as whether they're looking for some insights, understanding the different phases of their journey, uh, looking for capital, looking for just help? Um, how do you find yourself online and the things you're doing? Yeah, you can find me um, on LinkedIn. My venture capital fund that we've formed and started last year is called Enigma Ventures. And you can find us at Enigma Ventures online on Facebook and on LinkedIn and on our website enigmaventures.com and you can find me personally at Sarah Dusik. Sarah, one last question. What does the word intentional mean to you? Oh, great question. Intentional means having clarity about what you want, what you're trying to do and why. Because if you can understand those things, you can make them happen. And then you can be intentional about seeing the things that you dream of becoming reality. Thank you so much for coming on the show. This has absolutely been a blast. It's been my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, Ryan. I hope you enjoyed that podcast as much as I did. If anything, you're going to be signing up to go glamping, especially in 2021 as things open up. My big takeaway is how important it is to understand valuations and capital, both debt and equity, and how that becomes the oxygen behind fueling the growth of a company. And by understanding capital and the valuations, then you can tie your true vision, your true north to the right kind of capital, the right blend of debt and equity and the right people and investors behind that. Not only while you're fueling your growth, but also the person or buyer that eventually wants to take that financial asset that you've created and continue with it. By understanding capital, you can then vet out the right people and spend more time understanding who they are, what they want with your business and why, and what their morals and integrity levels are instead of spending all the time on the purchase agreement, the terms and conditions, because you're going to get lost in the weeds and forget to use your common sense of is this person or is this company a good individual or not? And does it align with what I eventually want with my business and why? And then you can vet out the deal structure 
structure of the capital and why that is going to be aligned or not aligned with your business and the strategic plan and vision you have for it. Don't forget to check out the Intention Growth course, which is a fast acceleration to all the knowledge of the things that were in this podcast, plus much more. Thanks for tuning in and I will see you next week.